0: The 75 roster features two new additions, Nova LN and the Sporty Monza 2 Plus 2, at your Chevy dealers now. And by Fireman's Fund Insurance. And Fireman's Fund Insurance is brought to you by an independent agent near you. Look for his name in the yellow pages for auto, home, life, or business insurance.
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh boy, friends, this is gonna be a fun one. I can feel it. I can feel it in my bones. It's gonna be a fun discussion uh, I, I already know it's a fun discussion. I'm just doing a pre-roll for this uh, this here episode, but uh, you know, I th- thanks for joining us. First of all, my name is Tim Hanlon, uh, as announced, and uh, this is uh, the podcast we call it "Good Seats Still Available." Our curious little journey into the nooks and crannies of what used to be in professional sports. Uh, one of the topics that have been uh, that's always been uh, 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 a huge source of intrigue for me personally and uh, it seems like uh, it is uh, a uh, a curiosity uh, for you uh, fine listeners out there as well it is uh, the uh, probably the quintessential league uh, that uh, kind of almost encapsulates uh, this the fascination the perverse fascination uh, that i have with uh, this subject matter uh, and uh, it comes uh, no surprise from the 1970s and uh, is probably most known for its um, Eyebrow-raising failures, shall we say. But uh, it is still part of uh, the history of pro sports in this country and uh, is uh, much more layered and textured than, uh, than the uh, just the, the, the sheer understanding of its brief two-year, well, actually year-and-a-half-long odyssey across the American sports landscape. Of course, I am talking about the World Football League, the WFL, from 1974 and 1975, the brainchild of a guy named Gary Davidson, uh, who, as most of you know, was also instrumental in helping launch, uh, two other challenger leagues during the seventies, the American Basketball Association, which actually started in the late sixties. He and, uh, Dennis Murphy, uh, part of that sort of, uh, a conglomerate that got that going. And, of course, the uh, WHA, the World Hockey Association, uh, that uh, was also part of his doing. But the WFL, uh, as we will soon learn in our conversation with our guest this week, Mark Speck, uh, was almost uh, essentially the Waterloo for Gary Davidson. uh, And frankly, for most of the owners who thought they knew better about how to uh, tackle, no pun, maybe pun, uh, the sport of pro football in the 1970s, uh, you know, perhaps football had uh, done what it could, I guess, expansion-wise and 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 whatnot uh, the decade prior with the American Football League. And we've had a couple of conversations uh, devoted to, to that league and more of that to come, of course. Uh, but uh, it didn't stop uh, Gary Davidson from pushing the envelope against the NFL, still uh, not necessarily – in as many markets as possible, folks like Davidson and others saw as possibilities for for uh, pro football franchises. Uh, and certainly uh, not the way they uh, treated their players and, and possibly, frankly, the, uh, the amount of money that uh, players uh, and coaches could make. Obviously, today in hindsight, uh, we know just uh, what a goldmine that uh, wound up becoming. But the WFL, yeah, it's th- that of the funny pants. And uh, of the wacky team names, the singular names like the Thunder and uh, the Hawaiians, not a singular name, but that just that was their name. Uh, just uh, the the New York Stars, which didn't even last a season until they moved to Charlotte and, and various teams that didn't even make it a full season uh, in any city. Uh, they, they only, you know, the Chicago wins of the 1975 second season. Uh, only lasting five games. Uh, just it is a parade of of stories uh, and, and uh, curiosities and and just unbelievable anecdotes. Uh, and our guest, Mark Speck, is probably the biggest knowledge base uh, of this league, and he has authored uh, three books. Count them uh, with a fourth one to come about this crazy and unbelievable league known as the WFL, the World Football League. Let's see, a couple of those books. One's called Wiffle, the Wild, Zany, and Sometimes Hilarious True Story of the World Football League. Uh, That's one. The uh, World Football League Encyclopedia with uh, his co-author, Todd Mayer, Uh, as well as uh, the story of one of the teams of the WFL, the uh, Florida Blazers, uh, the book uh, titled And a Dollar Short. And as uh, you will hear in our conversation with Mark Speck, Uh, Another one soon to come about the ill-fated Detroit wheels of the WFL. So it is fun. It is frivolity. It is uh, it's amazingness. Uh, It's important stuff, but it's also a whole bunch of frivolity uh, in between. And you will enjoy this conversation with Mark Speck and our discussions about the World Football League, the WFL, uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, A couple of promotional items. Let's get those out of the way, shall we? Um, I can't think of a better place than uh, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, especially with uh, relation to this episode. Uh, and if you go to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, you will probably find—I'm pretty sure—you will find a few items from the old WFL, as well as uh, items from lots of different leagues and teams, uh, no longer with us or dearly, dearly departed. Uh, and uh, when you stumble across something that you uh, just uh, couldn't uh, couldn't bear to not have it for your for yourself. Uh, Make sure that you uh, scribble down this uh, handy promo code uh, for your 15% discount. That promo code is, wait for it, Good Seats. Yes, Good Seats. That's the promo code to get 15% off all of your purchases at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Go visit there early, go visit there often, and enjoy your time there. And then, of course, after enjoying your time there, please purchase something and use your promo code Good Seats for 15% off. And uh, also another promotional uh, patter for you, uh, of course, is our friends at Audible. Audibletrial.com/goodseats. That's where you're going to get your free one month trial of the Audible audiobook service, and also a free audiobook download. One hundred and eighty thousand plus titles to choose from. Pick the genre, pick the author, pick the title. Just pick one. It's all you got to do. It's simple. It's brain dead simple. And it's basically a free trial because, in essence, not only are you getting your free month worth of the service, not only are you getting a free download, you can cancel at any time. So give it a start, give it a try. Audibletrial.com/slash goodseats. Try it for yourself. If you don't like it, cancel the damn thing and you'll be done. But I can't, I can't imagine you won't enjoy uh, trying to trying out an audiobook for yourself, especially if it's from an author or about a subject that you're really interested in. It's a great way to experience a book, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. We thank you for considering it and giving it a try. All right, let's go. Let's uh, let's go back. Let's turn the Wayback Machine to the early 1970s and the uh, very colorful times and the uh, just unbelievable circumstances and the stories that came from the World Football League, the WFL. Here's our conversation Coming up with Mark Speck. The WFL obviously is uh, is uh, a curiosity that is endless for me. And uh, it was a mere blip in my sort of, uh, in my consciousness as a kid and growing up. And I was a big, more of a North American soccer league kind of aficionado. But um, it's the more one digs and the more, even though it lasted charitably a year and a half, uh, in the 70s, I'm, uh, if you could give our audience some sense of how you stumbled across this league and why it's intriguing to you and, and why it's such a source of endless curiosity, I think, to people who who are football fans and sports fans generally.
0: Well, I've been always fascinated by rival leagues uh, that started with the AFL back in the 60s, um, went to the ABA, the WHA, the World Hockey Association. And it was just a natural progression when the WFL started up. We all heard about it in '73, late '73, and '74. It started up, and it was just uh, another fascination to me. I've even gotten back to the ABL, the old American Basketball League that started back in the early '60s. I think I was three or four years old. It. I don't remember it, you know, at the time. But it's another fascinating league. Again, a, a league that took on the big guy and the block, just like the WFL. Um, you know, it's just amazing to me that somebody would actually have the chutzpah or the cojones to actually get in there and say, you know what, we're taking them on. We're going to see, you know, what we can do uh, against them and see if we can, uh, you know, survive against them.
1: So, why go deeper then? So, you're, 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 you know, arguably you're the sort of the dean, I think, of, of WFL uh, 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 history, right? You've got uh, not one, but three books, uh, and I suspect probably some more in you uh devoted to to this league what, what why the why the personal fascination and the um i guess the drive to sort of document this kind of stuff
0: well you know i appreciate the words i, I consider todd mayer the, the dean of wfl researchers he's the one that got me into it as far as getting books published he was the one that wanted me to help him with the wfl encyclopedia and that led to an uh, an association with saint Johann press in new jersey um, and Dave uh, Beisel there at Sage Johan has been able to, you know, look into my um, my projects, my weird ideas, and said, "Hey, let's go with these because they go with slice of life kind of publications, books, that kind of thing." And uh, whenever I got in there with Todd, he wanted me to help him, you know, put together this encyclopedia, which we did. It, it all starts with statistics. I mean, there was no repository for WFL to, uh, statistics at the time. Um, it was really just NFL, the NFL encyclopedias really only had NFL, you know, they had the AFL and maybe the AA, AAFC back in the forties, but the WFL was completely ignored. There was no way to look up these stats at the time. This was pre internet. This was before, you know, you know, you go into Google and look up stuff and look up things automatically. This was back when you were looking up old newspapers to your eyeballs implode on the old, you know, the old microfilm and, uh, Todd got me started with St. Johan. We put together the encyclopedia, which was quite a task in itself, looking through the old sporting news, looking through the old game accounts, the old newspapers. We got that all done. We got it together. Um, and I think, like I said, uh, Dave Beisel there at uh, St. Johan said, Hey, um, you know, if there's anything else that you want to do, look me up. I did. I had the Blazers book about the Florida Blazers and then the uh, book on the league itself. And now I am uh, finalizing a book on the Detroit wheels, which should be out sometime this year. Uh, again, another great story from the league that I thought should be told because again, a lot of these stories were not told um, that Florida blazers to me was a great story, not just a football story, but a human interest story, a business story about how these guys put up with this, the players for the, for the blazers, the front office people, the coach Jack party and his coaches, they just weren't getting paid. They didn't get paid the last four or five months of the of the season, yet they kept winning games. They kept hanging in there. I think maybe they had two guys that quit, but the rest of them hung in there. They came within a point of winning the championship. I mean, to me, that is a great story that needs to be told, and it, it was told by me, and I'm glad that, uh, that Dave there at St. Johanna believed in it and went with it. So I was very happy with it, and I thought it turned out very well, and it's, it's a story that needs to be told, just like the WFL.
1: All right. So so give it give our audience a sense of, of, OK, so you you figure out that the statistics thing is probably sort of the, the hook by which all of this, uh, any of these sort of stories can sort of emanate from. Right. And the absence of them or perhaps the diaspora of them or frankly, maybe even the the absence of them altogether, perhaps because they weren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, recorded properly, shall we say, in the in the. Craziness of the sort of two iterations of this league. What's how do you start that process to find and 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 get uh, I guess trusted sources of data and and maybe walk us through sort of how you kind of pieced this at least this encyclopedia with Todd together and the stories that emanated uh, uh, in that process.
0: Well, it was like you said, it was a daunting task. My curiosity started when. Um, I don't know if you remember the old Roger treat football encyclopedia it used to come out every year um, and they would have the, the rosters for every team back all the way back in the NFL. Well, the 1976 edition had the WFL rosters in them. They had every team's rosters. And I was just fascinated by seeing that because I had never seen it before. I'd never seen those all before every, every team's roster, every player that played for that team. And that just got me started and, Um, I kind of let it go when I was going to college in the early 80s, but then it picked up again. I think it was inspired probably by the USFL being around there in the the mid-80s. I thought, you know what, there's another league out there that, you know, let's go with that. I was kind of debating between USFL and the WFL. And I I first was really into the USFL, but the more I read about the WFL, I said, you know, we've got to really – document this. This is something that needs to be documented. It needs to be remembered. It needs to be put down on paper somewhere. And Todd Conte, and I met him through the Professional Football Researchers Association. He had published a book through the PFRA about the WFL. It was a, uh, it was a kind of an encyclopedia. It wasn't quite um, complete. It had some game account or, um, you know, game accounts as far as, you know, the, what they were talking about, the games. They had a little bit of story about each team. Um, I don't even know if he had rosters in it at the time. I think he had the games listed. Um, he didn't have a whole lot of stats. So he said, Let's do an update of this and he talked to me, we got together, we exchanged information for several years back and forth. He would find something, send it to me, I would find something, I would send it to him. It was like, Hey, I found this in the Charlotte newspaper. I found this in a in a even in a newspaper that didn't have a WFL team, you know, like some newspaper in Tulsa or or you know new orleans or anything like that you it's hey i found this article this has got stats in it okay let's go with that so it was just the idea of putting all this together getting it uh you know in some kind of a shape to where we had all the games we had all the players looking through transactions i mean at the time again a lot of the times they had you know nfl transactions for the wfl transaction you'd find a few here and there but that was it not a complete listing. And, you know, we're still working on that, but it was just the idea of finding team rosters. And then, uh, Oh, back in the early nineties, I went to, um, a sports, uh, memorabilia shop out in Arizona. I lived out there and they had a 1975 WFL media guy, which I had never seen before. The guy didn't want too much for it. I bought it from him. It had all the stats from 74 in it. So that really helped us a lot to get that together that we could, started working on it 74 stats, and then we had several sources for the 75 and put them together. They were not covered as well. Sporting News had dropped their coverage of them in 75, so we didn't have that repository to work for us. So it was really tough to get to 75, but we did get it from a few sources. It was just, it was a daunting task, because like I said, you look through microfilm to your eyeballs imploded in libraries, down in the bowels of a library somewhere, and uh, but it was worth it because I think now we've got a pretty good documentation of the league.
1: All right, so let, let's uh, let's scene set a little bit, right? So uh, we're we're basically going back to the early part of the nineteen seventies, and and you know as we've discovered in a lot of our conversations around various teams and leagues, right? This is you know the the, the late sixties, the early seventies, and if you if you want to give the AFL full credit, you know actually going back to the early sixties, right? You had this sort of era of. Uh, challenger leagues, to your point earlier, um, around just about every sport uh, professionally, uh, including those that were that were not necessarily professional sports to begin with in this country, like soccer. Um, it, it so in steps this uh, concept of challenging the uh, the ever growing and all powerful NFL. Perhaps once again, um, maybe you can kind of scene set for us, sort of what the early 1970s and leading up to. Uh, the beginnings of this idea of what would soon become the World Football League for our audience.
0: Well, it was pretty much one guy, um, Gary Davidson. Um he had started up the WA uh the ABA excuse me, uh back in sixty seven, helped start up. He wasn't really a big player there. I mean he was kind of the guy that had the idea, but there was other guys that really took the ball and really uh ran with it. He kind of had the idea, kind of was in on the on the the groundwork of it, but you know he was kind of involved but he felt like hey we're doing a pretty good job the ABA was doing well kind of i mean they had teams that moved teams that folded that kind of thing but they were still hanging in there then he started up the WHA where he was a little bit more of a of a player there him and Dennis Murphy um they really started up the WHA and uh, in 72 um really got it going again you had teams that had trouble teams that folded teams that moved but yet they were hanging in there, and now he thought, "Hey, I've got two leagues, you know, um, out there that I'm that I had the, I can take to my credit. Let's take on the next one. Let's go on to the NFL." So in '73, he, he was going to start out. The, he was actually going to start in '75 because he really didn't have too much going on yet. He would really it was just at the basics. Um, but then he had an, a, an idea of another league was starting a football league. He got. Um, window that said, Hey, we better start a little bit earlier. Um, so then he decided to start in 74. You again, he, because of the other two and that, you know, he kind of used the WHA, the ABA and even the AFL as a kind of a guide as what to do, um, um, how to start things up, how to look for owners, how to look for players, how to recruit players, um, you know, that kind of thing. And it was very seventies league. They had their, you know, they had a, a one company that designed all the uniforms. They were very seventies with all the funky colors with the magentas and the oranges and the lime greens and the blues and uh, that kind of thing. So they were very seventies looking. They were very progressive looking where the NFL kind of had uniforms. They've been having around for years. Uh, People were fascinated by that. So it was just the idea of Davidson, you know, I mean, say what you will about him. He, you know, he's had some, some, a little bit of a bad reputation sometimes, but he had the the the, the chutzpah, as you could say, to go in there and say, you know what? I'm taking on first. I'm taking on the NBA, then I'm going to take on the NHL, now I'm going to take on the NFL. So I mean, he had three leagues right there that he built a rival league for against in a span of less than a decade. I mean, he started in like '67, and the WFL came in '74. So in less than a decade, he started up three leagues by himself. You know, so you know it's it's amazing that he did that, but it was just you know to him the time was right i'm not sure if it was or not and i guess it turned out that the economy was pretty bad but um you know it was just something that he he was determined to do and uh, he did it
1: yeah so uh, the the wfl obviously the 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 starting of it and the history of it of course are 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 in inextricably, inextricably i can't even say that today uh, intertwined with that of, of, uh, of the life and times of Gary Davidson. Uh, and Gary is absolutely somebody that is uh, on our shortlist, uh, as is uh, uh, Dennis Murphy. Now, uh, whether the two of them uh, individually or separately uh, or uh, combined are uh, willing and able to chat with us, but uh, you can't think of two more seminal guys sort of behind sort of that zeitgeist of, of challenging things. And, and you know, you can look no further than this out-of-print book, which I'd love to somehow figure out a way to get republished, is uh, almost sort of semi-autobiography by Gary Davidson, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called Breaking the Game Wide Open. Um, right, yeah. A book that he wrote uh, that is uh, woefully uh, out-of-print, uh, but I am staring mm-hmm. at a copy of it here on my desk here, at our little podcast uh, headquarters and chutzpah is 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 a, is a kind word but if you think about it right and you know sports illustrated back in 1994 uh did i think the top 50 sort of uh uh seminal uh sports uh, executives or people in sports that changed uh things uh for better or for worse and uh number 39 is Gary Davidson Pr- rather surprisingly uh, i think for most uh sports aficionados but if you you know if you look back i mean there's a lot of um uh, there's a lot of reasons for why a WFL uh, was to challenge the NFL, right? And and some of that had to do with how players were treated and or contracted, um the uh, the freedoms or lack thereof, um, the markets, frankly, that uh, that the NFL was in or or not in. um, you know, lots of in retrospect, it seems obvious now, but um, some of the reasons for why uh, trying to tackle, shall we say, no pun, uh, the NFL and, and trying to, in his words, break the game open in uh, in senses and, and create new business opportunities where for whatever reasons uh, there were none and arguably because of, um, you know, leagues that existed that were not necessarily open or willing to, uh, to rush into the future that quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the NFL survived the, the merger with the AFL. They thought, OK, we put that behind us. Now we can kind of Uh, you know, catch our breath and they kind of just kind of stagnated a little bit there in the early seventies. A lot of their, you know, it was still like a three yards in a cloud of dust kind of a game It wasn't wide open. I think in 72, they had, I, if I can remember correctly, they had like 20,000 yard rushers and only two quarterbacks that threw for 3000 yards. So, I mean, it was really a ground-based league. um, And Davidson said, we've got to, you know, like you said, break the game wide open. It was probably a good title for that because he wanted to get a league that had more passing, had more offense, had a little bit brighter look to it. And that's what it's, that was what one of their lines was that, you know, a whole new look to the game uh, when they started out. So it was just the idea of, you know, the NFL's kind of grown arrogant. They're kind of, a, you know, the fat cat now. Let's kind of shake them up a little bit. They, in, installed all these new rules they moved the goal post up to the goal line from uh, or back from the goal line um, and it had all these different rules that helped the offense and lo and behold the NFL adopted them uh, about a few months later the same exact rules a lot of the same exact rules now you know they didn't have the action point they didn't you know change the touchdown from six to seven and they had to one foot uh, for the receiver in bounds to catch a pass, but they didn't adopt those. But a lot of the same ones that the WFL had, the NFL adopted. So you're right there; you're already making, um, you know, an impact on the professional game by saying we're going to make these rules. And then, sure enough, the the big guy on the block, the NFL, adopts a lot of the same rules. As far as markets, you had, you know, they went into Memphis, they went into Birmingham. These were Uh, markets that were not tapped by the NFL. They played some, um, you know, exhibition games there every once in a while. Um, But, you know, now you've got the team in, uh, you know, Tennessee Titans now. They had a team in Jacksonville. Now you've got the Jacksonville Jaguars. Um, You know, Birmingham still doesn't have a team yet, but a lot of the, you know, Hawaiians don't. But they play the Pro Bowl there every year. Um, so it, it's, you know, a lot of their markets were the untapped markets that really did well. Um, and then eventually went into the NFL. So, um, you know, it's just the idea that they did shake up the game. They did make a difference. He did make a difference. You know, the, the ABA kind of changed with the three point shot. They had, the, the, the dunk contest, which now is on the NBA, you know, the all-star game every year that started in the ABA At WHA had all these, um, you know, new markets there. So, you know, he was one of the, I mean, it it was surprising because a lot of people probably didn't know who he was at the time in 1994, who Gary Davidson was, didn't know from a hole in the ground, but he did make quite a difference there in the late sixties and early seventies in three different sports. And some of that is still being felt today.
1: So uh, circa 73 or so, right. Um, You also had apparently some, some uh, rumblings of labor strife in both, not just the NFL, but also the CFL, um, it, was that part of uh, the rush, I guess, perhaps, to to move up the timeline from, I guess, the originally envisioned 1975 to a season earlier? And, and uh, you know, was that the—we uh, know why, perhaps, that was not necessarily the right thing to do, but uh, it, it seemed to me that that's, that helped sort of force things uh, to move a little bit quicker than maybe was originally planned.
0: Well, oh, I think so. I think Gabe, uh, Gary Davidson had his hand on the pulse and knew that there was a labor um, agreement that was supposed to be ratified coming up in 74 in the NFL. The CFL also had a, a strike there in 74 at the same time the NFL did. So for a while there, when they started playing in the early, you know, early part of July of 74, they were really the only game in town. I mean, the NFL was on strike, no freedom, no football. They had the T-shirts, they were all on the picket line, the CFL. A lot of their veterans had walked out. So right then, I think that had to play a part of it. I think you're right. I think Davidson knew that. He said, hey, this could give us a foothold, give us an idea of getting in there and getting a kind of a niche for ourselves. While those guys are out on strike, we can go in and start playing games. The people come out to see us. They want football, and they don't have it with the NFL. They don't have it with the CFL. This could give us a little bit of a foothold with the American public and even the Canadian public.
1: So uh, Davidson had a reputation and we kind of broached on a little bit uh, as, as a bit of a hustler. And, and if you think about it, too, right, you know, uh, Dennis Murphy and, and all the other guys, you could even go back to, you know, to some respects to, to Lamar Hunt. And they, I mean, they all have to have an element of hustle, shall we say, in their DNA, right, to to get these things going. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of how uh, Davidson at al. got uh, the original um, – investors uh, sort of uh, behind him and involved, right? Because it's one thing to have the idea. It's one thing to have a couple of, uh, of successes underway. But, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to selling the vision uh, and getting some folks to buy in literally and figuratively to that vision. Um, do you have any sense of how he went about and with whom he brought into the mix in the early days to sort of get this idea up and running uh, before even hitting the, uh, the playing field?
0: Well, I think what helped him was the other two leagues, with the ABA, WHA, really helped him to get out there and, uh, you know, start putting some feelers out there, see in some of these markets who he could contact to get, um, you know, get together with, get the owners together, find the owners. Um, you know, he went into, he had some, actually was, a lot of them were his own his friends, his associates. He had Steve Arnold, who uh, originally was in Memphis, and moved to Houston. Um, he was a buddy of his. Um, he had a couple other ones, and then he then he found uh, John Bassett, who was a great owner. He was going to go into Toronto, um, but then the uh, Canadian Parliament uh, made a fuss that they were going to ban all kinds of American football, and he didn't want them up there, so Bassett moved his team to Memphis. Um, he had, um, uh, I think, Howard Baldwin up in Boston originally, but that didn't work out. They couldn't get a stadium. He was another friend of Davidson's. Um, a lot of them were his friends at first, then he started looking around, he really didn't do a very good job in some areas. Um, you know, Detroit, um, they promised they could get into tiger stadium. They wound up in Ypsilanti out for uh, an Eastern Michigan uh, university out there field, which was like 35, 40 miles outside of Detroit, very small stadium. Um, and then, uh, but they had Bill Putnam down in uh, Birmingham who was a very good owner, had the money. Another guy who had a lot of money was Tom Reiger in Chicago, um, he got on board. Um, he was gonna put a team, and he had another guy, Nick Miletti, I think, originally from Chicago, and then he was he uh, bowed out and then went uh, gave it to Roger. He was a very good owner, had the pockets, deep pockets, to uh, afford the losses. Um, and then he had um, Chris Hemmeter and Sam Battistone, who were in Hawaii. Uh, Battistone wound up being approved for the NBA for the New Orleans Jazz. So he had the money, and him and Hemmeter both had money out there. Uh, so he, he did find some good owners. Um, some of them were not so good. I mean, Portland was a bad, uh, he had a three or four different owners, but they finally set it on uh, Bob Harris, um, who really wasn't a very good owner. He's very absentee owner and really just wanted to move the team to London, Ontario. And that was basically his whole idea with the team. He didn't want to finance the Portland team. He didn't want to play there. He didn't like playing there. Um, Southern California had Larry Hatfield, who at first looked pretty good and had some money, but then he had some legal problems. But it was basically just some of his friends. Hatfield, again, was another Davidson crony, if you could call him that. Um, He looked at his friends first, some of his pals that were hanging around the sports world. And then he got some feelers out there, and got some leads for some other ones. So some of them were good, some of them not so good. Yes yeah, so And I think that happens in just about any league. So yeah.
1: I think he called them the founding fathers, quote unquote. Um, and uh, I'm not sure those uh, those folks wanted to be sort of known as that uh, as things played out over time. Uh, Howard Baldwin is somebody we want to get, uh, obviously uh, uh, entrenched uh, and well known with the uh, Hartford Whalers and and uh, the WHA New England Whalers prior to that, and. Obviously, gone on to other things, but uh, he's still with us, and would love probably to figure out a, a, an opportunity to get his his assessment of sort of that coming uh, that coming together. But it's it also seems to me too, to your point, that uh, you call them cronies or whatever. I mean, there seems to be a number of uh, associates from his uh, WHA uh, days uh, as as co owners or uh, folks who kind of have been through the uh, the process before with him. Um, but so uh, it also seems to me too that that there were just a number of people that uh, almost even just fell out of the whole process uh, even before uh, the league began. i I, I read uh, a little story about um, uh, the Philadelphia franchise that uh, that Davidson was trying to get, uh, and this guy, uh, Harry J. Katz, um, and uh, you know, in essence, uh, there's, you know, he finally discovers Davidson does that. Uh, you know, Katz is under uh, a lot of very various lawsuits. Same thing with um, with uh, Bud Hutchell, right? Uh, that uh, uh, I guess was right. originally going to get the Detroit franchise. Uh, but you know, once he discovered late in the fact that that Hutchell apparently had been arrested something like thirty times or so, and was, was under twenty-seven or twenty-eight lawsuits of his own. Um, what was the vetting process, right? Because aside from the folks that maybe Davidson had worked with before, which you could argue, you know, had given them some kind of him kind of some kind of filter as to the, the 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 veracity of those folks. Where are these other characters coming from, and how does he, you know, I, frankly, some of these franchises, as we'll find out in a few minutes, right? Um, you know, he didn't sort of understand the depth of some of the shadiness of some of these these characters. Uh, he was lucky to get a few of them out before things started, but he clearly didn't get them all. Uh, wh- wh- I mean, right. what's going through his mind, and or how to how does this stuff even come about? You know, and, uh, how do you how do you even get into the conversation and into the room without sort of being found out beforehand?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess something as mundane as a background report. I guess they just didn't want to do. I guess they just didn't didn't bother with it in some cases. You said Hodgeul up in Detroit. He called up Davidson, said, "Hey, I'm interested in putting a team here." Davidson said, "Sure, yeah, okay, sounds good." And again, like you said, he had I don't know something like 30 arrests. He had a lot of shady dealings um, with with people in the area up there. Um, he had lawsuits against him. With, you know, creditors, you know, hounding his door. And finally, you know, the, he, he well, as it turns out, it comes out in my book. He went to another group who was interested in the team, and, and they said, "Okay, we'll let you join our team, and you can be in our group, and we'll give you this job, and all this, and that." And it turned out they didn't, you know, they reneged on all the promises, and yet the group that it turned out to own the team wasn't much better than Hatcher was. Um, again, you talked about Katz; he was a very good example. Um, he, he he didn't have all the money; it was his father who had the money he was basically one of these, you know, rich sons that just kind of hung out and said, Oh yeah, okay, great. Yeah, I'll do it. And he had no money. Um, and he got out of there, but you know, again, you know, you have to weed out these people and, you know, unfortunately a lot of times it didn't happen. You know, you had, uh, Bruce Jelker, I think up in Portland and one of the owners, he owned the Saddleback Inns. Um, he just didn't want to get involved. He, he just kind of held on to the franchise for a while, but he said, no, I don't want to really be a part of this. And he, Got out and uh, went with that Bob Harris. who wasn't much better, um, you know. It was just an idea of not doing the background check, not vetting these guys in, in a better way um, at the beginning, at the at the startup, and avoiding these problems that that hounded the team all the way, you know, from uh, from that start to the end. So it was just a, a, an unfortunate thing. But again, you've got to do your your, your homework. You got to do your background checks you've got to do your vetting and check out these people beforehand and then try to get to go he did you know like i said you had bassett who was a great owner wound up in the usfl as a great owner had the money had the uh you know the the way to spend the money wanted to spend the money ran a first class operation very good owner putnam was a very good owner in birmingham but he got bankrupted by all the uh NFL players that he signed, he had to have all these signing bonuses that he had to to hand out, and that bankrupted him. They led the league in attendance, but because of all these signing bonuses, it wound up bankrupting him, and he had to opt in for the second year. So it was just, you know, between not doing background checks and then some of the guys just didn't know, and it was funny, but Putnam, because he had been in with the Philadelphia Flyers in the NHL before this, so you'd think he'd have had a little bit of more um you know on the idea of a good business plan but he didn't he overspent and uh you know put himself out of business
1: well on the opposite end of the spectrum you mentioned him before and it's probably worth uh isolating a couple seconds on him is john bassett right and um and obviously a seminal character not only as you say in the wfl but also the usfl uh and the story that sort of uh, intertwines them together um maybe you can kind of uh spend a couple of seconds on on bassett and maybe in particular You know, his original idea was to have uh, a team, I guess perhaps uh, in a bow to the actual name of the league, the World Football League, uh, in Toronto. But uh, it it didn't come about. Uh, Maybe you can kind of give our audience an understanding as to why Toronto was not one of the charter franchises uh, in 74.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Bassett, he wanted to have a team up there. Very good owner. Had the money. He was in the TV, radio up in Canada. Um, He had a lot of money. Um, And like I said, he knew how to run a business. He knew how to run it first class. He knew how to spend the money, where to spend it, how to spend it. Um, And he wanted to put a team in Toronto and Canadian uh, parliament at the time, I think it was Lalonde, I think was his name was the uh, um, one of the officials up there said, no, we can't have an American football team in Canada against the CFL. You got to move out. We're going to give you a problem. We're going to give you a hassle along the way. You're not going to get all the, the uh, amenities maybe some other owner from Canada would get. You're not going to be able to come up here. Bassett all losing situation. He knew it was going to be a problem, knew it was going to be a hassle, had the foresight to say, okay, I'm out of here. He went south, went to Memphis, where he built one of the best franchises. At the end of March, he knew how to, you know, build publicity. Um, when he signed the Miami Free, he signed Zonka, Kick Warfield uh, from the Miami Dolphins made a huge splash in the newspapers. I mean it was in Time magazine, it was all over the place. And he knew how to get the people interested in his in his team by doing something like that, making waves where it's like, whoa, these people mean business. And the NFL kind of said the same thing. These guys maybe these guys really mean business. And he knew how to do that. Um so he ran a first class operation in the Southman or the Grizzlies. They had both nicknames, so pick whatever you one you want. Um, had a great operation, had a great organization, uh, one of the better teams in the league. And in fact, wound up in at the end of 75, trying to get in the NFL as an expansion team didn't make it, but who knows what would have happened if they did. But Bassett was very good. He knew, uh, the business, he knew how to run it and he was just an amazing owner and probably the, the strongest one of, of all of them in the WFL and probably close to it in the USFL when he was there. Do you have
1: any sense as to why Memphis was the place he chose to uh, to move the uh, fledgling franchise?
0: Well, they had they had a team in Memphis. It was that uh, Steve Arnold again. He was a player agent, and he uh, he originally had Memphis. Couldn't get anything in there. They didn't want him because Memphis at the time was still looking to get a seventy six expansion team because they had hosted a, a, a an exhibition game there almost every year with the NFL, drew good crowds put on a good show for the, for the fans We're really pushing to get an NFL franchise in 76. And when Seattle and Tampa Bay got it and Memphis got kind of booted out, then they wanted, then they wanted a WFL team. And this was after Arnold had left and gone to Houston. Then now uh, all of a sudden, Oh, wait a minute. We want a WFL team. We didn't get an NFL team. We're ticked off. Now we're getting to w- WFL team. They called Bassett, contacted him. A lot of the, the civic leaders, the, the the, team, the city leaders, um, said, Hey, we want a team. Come on down here. If you don't want, if they don't want you in Canada, we'll want you down here in Memphis. They give them a lot of uh, good deals. They give them the, uh, the stadium. Uh, there's all the stuff that Arnold didn't get when he was there simply because, you know, now they had been, you know, turned aside by the NFL. Now they wanted a team. So and they had, they, they felt betrayed because they had you know, hosted a, an exhibition game every year, um, put on a good show, Really did a good job, and they wanted that NFL franchise. Were denied. Said, "All right, let's go with the WFL." So they contacted Bassett. He came down, and you know the rest is is, is history as far as uh, you know being the best owner in the WFL at the time.
1: Well, and also led to uh, uh, after all that sort of happened, a, a continuing uh, process, and apparently a, a an antitrust lawsuit uh, from uh, from him and Memphis. Uh, that kind of dragged on for years, and actually into the uh, beginnings of actually the USFL year uh, a bunch of years later, um, it seemed like antitrust was uh, on the minds of uh, of various folks, including the people of Memphis and or Mr. Bassett. Um, you know, as a almost as a legacy um, component of all of this uh, all this stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, at, 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 when the WFL folded, uh, Memphis kept their team together. All the other teams pretty much disbanded. The players went their own way. Bassett said, "Let's hang together. Let's see if we can't sue the NFL to get in there. They, they, they petitioned to be a, a, an expansion team. They said no, we don't want you to be. Then they filed the antitrust lawsuit, which, like you said, dragged on for years, probably close to a decade, if not longer. Um, that they uh, they tried to get in the NFL, and Bassett just kept pushing and pushing, but he couldn't. And then he went back into the USFL when it came in uh, in '82." And, uh, again, was a good owner there, but he, he had that antitrust. You yeah, know, there was a lot of talk about the antitrust. And that's, that's what happens when you got Davidson was a lawyer. He had a lot of lawyers hanging around him. So, you know, when you got a lot of lawyers together, you got a lot of talk about antitrust and all that stuff. So, yeah, that that was a big part of it. I, I, I'm not sure what Davidson's plan was. They said he would just wanted to get a merger with the NFL, um, like he did with the, he was trying with the ABA and the WHA. Um, or if he wanted an actual – you know, rival league, a second league, like more like, uh, you know, somebody else might have if they just wanted a permanent second league. I, I'm There's, there's conflicting stories. Some of them said he just wanted the merger. Others said he wanted to actually have a second league. So um, whatever, you know, it, it, it's, there's good and bad written about Davidson always will be. Uh, but yeah, he did make a difference.
1: All right. So again, I, I need to put a push pin on this because I, I need to put this out to our audience. Um, I, we, we, desperately would love to talk to Gary Davidson um, Again, I don't know uh, if he is willing and able but uh, this seems to be a uh, uh, an interesting and, and uh, logical forum to uh, to have the sort of first person accounts and and I think it's probably beyond time and uh, so we put that out to our audience if anybody knows how to get in contact with Gary Davidson we have been trying uh, we absolutely would love to to talk to him and and, and get sort of the full from the horse's mouth story about all this. Um but maybe uh Mark you can kind of segue for us into um how the players were and the teams were being put together. Uh because uh that seemed to be an interesting uh dance uh and uh and series of events by the by itself. Um you mentioned uh which is probably the most uh uh memorable uh I guess raid, shall we say, of NFL talent which was the uh, the signing of uh, of Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield from Miami uh, to join uh, the then-Memphis Southmen slash Grizzlies. Um, but it, it, that, while that makes a splash, it wasn't that simple, was it, right? They weren't necessarily just going to drop everything, these three players, uh, contractually and, jo- and join Memphis in 1974 when the league was getting started, right? They had some um, some wrinkles in the process, and it seemed like other players in the NFL Uh, did as well, right? It wasn't easy to get them to jump on board quickly.
0: No, I mean, it wasn't because, you know, they were in an established league. Um, You know, they, they had contracts with, um, you know, Joe Robbie in Miami. They weren't getting paid a lot. Uh, Bassett went to them with these offers that were through the roof that they couldn't believe. Um, That's why they had to, what they, signed a lot of of uh, players signed were these future contracts to start in 75 or 76 or 77 uh, because when they their contracts they had to they had to play out their rest of their contracts in the NFL the WFL said we're not going to take players that are still under contract with the NFL they could sign them to these future contracts which they did with uh, zonka kick and Warfield once they did that then the floodgates opened. you got Kenny stabler signing with Birmingham uh, for 76. You've got Elsie uh, Greenwood signing with Birmingham. Um, you had a ton of players that that signed these future contracts. Ted Hendricks signed a contract. Um, there was quite a few players. I don't know how much it – how how um, off the top of my head there was many of this Probably 50 or 60 to sign. Now, some, now as it turns out, a lot of these players that signed future contracts – Craig Morton was another one. He was another one. He signed with Houston. Um, it was because of the fact he was still sitting behind Roger Staubach. He first sat behind Don Meredith. Now he was sitting behind Roger Staubach. He didn't like it. He was He's tired of being a bench warmer and he signed with Houston. Um, but what happened with a lot of these guys um, was that when they signed these future contracts, the, the original team, that the NFL team had, had them, either cut them or traded them. Uh, Bill Berge was a good example of that. He was uh, playing with the Bengals. Signed with the uh, Florida Blazers, and uh, for I think it was like seventy-five or seventy-six, Paul Brown had a fit. Paul Brown traded him to, uh, to uh, Philadelphia, where he turned out to be an All-Pro player, helped the Eagles get into Super Bowl uh, uh, fifteen in uh, nineteen eighty. You know, basically cut off his own you know nose despite his face by getting rid of Bergie. Another one was Curly Culp who was with Kansas City signed a future contract with Southern California, uh, next thing you know, he's being traded to Kansas city. So uh, a lot of guys were either cut or traded when they signed these contracts, Ted Hendricks went from, uh, from Baltimore to green Bay. Um, and then a lot of other ones were just cut. It was just the idea that, you know, instead of trying to keep these players, the, the, the Rainers did with, um, with Stabler, um, Dallas kept most of their players. They had a lot of them signed. Elsie Greenwood obviously stayed with the Steelers. They didn't get rid of them because they knew better. But uh, it was a lot of them just, you know, hung in there and said, now nah, we're going to keep these guys. But some of them did. Some of them just said, okay, you want to do that, fine. Or I'm going to get rid of you. And they basically, you know, you know just a spite out of spite. And they basically shot themselves in the foot because, again, Berge was a great player. Curly Culp up in the Hall of Fame. You know, you trade these players because they signed a future contract. It's kind of a not very good business, not very good football sense to do something like that. And the, and the ironic thing was that Culp was traded for John Matuzak, who wound up having about a seven play career in the WFL in 74 with Houston. So that's another story. But it was just kind of ironic that Culp was traded for Matuzak, and then uh, they both, Matuzak was the one that wound up in the WFL.
1: All right, just when it was getting interesting let's uh let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt shall we ah, just kidding uh, we got to pay the bills around here and uh, our friends at audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking and also a free one month uh, subscription to the service uh, of audible at audibletrial.com good seats again audibletrial.com goodseats for your free one month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly. Uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, aka the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And thats uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get Uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. uh, And her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, as clearly today, the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, uh, the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the, uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. Well, let's talk about Matusek for a second because it's an interesting little uh, anecdote there that uh, if, if uh, you remember uh, that that he's famous for or infamous for and maybe is a, a microcosm of the WFL altogether.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he was sitting around uh, training camp and Cotton back in. Uh, he was just bored one day. Um, I guess he didn't really like Stitt Gilman too much. He was a coach at Houston, the Oilers. That's who he was with at the time. Um said he found him and Steve Arnold, who was again the owner at Houston, somehow found a loophole even big enough for the twos to get through. Um, But I don't know if they did or not, but they made noise that they did. He signed a contract with the Houston Texans while still under contract with the Houston Oilers. So he wound up going to uh, the one game when they played the New York stars in the Astrodome, he was there on the field. Uh, got into about seven plays and it was a uh, and Matuzak said he looked over on the sidelines and saw this look like a posse waiting for him over there with all these sheriff's deputies. Um, didn't want to go to the sidelines, try to, I don't know how he was going to stay in if the offense was in the game, but he finally went over to the sidelines. They served him the restraining order right on the sideline. Him and Arnold looked at it. Yep. It was legit. Uh, he couldn't play anymore. He walked off the field, waving the, uh, um, restraining order in the air with the fans or whoever was there. There weren't very many of You as, you know, of course, because Houston didn't draw very well, but there he is walking off the field with the deputies waving the restraining order. Um, you know, his, his career lasted seven plays. Um, but it was, again, another one of those weird, wacky, wonderful stories that come out of the WFL was, was Matu's was probably one of the craziest ones. You know, so, I mean, you know, Babe Perilli, he was coaching New York. He said, I've never seen anything like that. Here comes some sheriffs coming out and serving restraining order right on the field. Never seen it. That is insane. And, well, I guess what, yeah, I guess what they had happened was the sheriff wanted to catch him in the locker room, but missed him. And um, so they had to do it on the field. So they just made it even more crazy, more wacky. But that was the WFL. Well,
1: all right, let's talk about uh, the season getting started, right? So players are found uh, by hook or by crook. um And the plan was for 20 games, right, for a regular season, which was uh, significantly longer than the NFL's, which I think at the time the NFL schedule was 14 uh, regular season games. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, they did six preseason games back then. Um, Yeah. But uh, the WFL went for a 20-game regular season with uh, really no official sort of uh, uh, exhibition games. uh, uh, So... Perhaps maybe give us a sense of sort of how the uh, how the league was set up for play uh, when it was going to run. Obviously, it was going to be starting in the in the summertime, um, and then overlap into the NFL as the as the fall sort of got on. Maybe a sense of uh, the idea behind uh, how many teams and the play and and what seventy four was shaping up to be uh, on the field.
0: Yeah, I mean they they wanted to get a jump on the NFL. They wanted to get a jump on the CFL. Start their season early. They started in like the early July, I think it was July 10th was the first game. They wanted to get ahead of the NFL, get a, get a foothold in there before um, the NFL and the TFL started up. Um, most of the players they got, um, there was a few big names, but a lot of them were unknowns. They were, you know, uh, minor leaguers. You had uh, semi pro guys. You had guys right out of college. You had people that had been out of game for a while. It was just whoever they wanted to, you know, whoever they could get it to sign. Um, you know, the, Detroit team had a, um, not even a tryout, but they offered, uh, you know, anybody that would come into our offices, we'll take your name and we'll have tryouts later this year. And it was in May, they had like 660 people show up all shapes and sizes. So it was, it was just a crazy recruiting way. I mean, some of them did a better job than others obviously because of the talent they had. Um, uh, but it was just hook or crook, just get, get whoever you can to get signed. Um, and, uh, so they started out. They had 12 teams. They had three divisions. They divided them into three divisions. They started in uh, July. Um, again, to get a start on the NFL and the CFL. Um, you know, again, the games because they didn't have any exhibition games. That's where you get all the kinks worked out, all the you know the the difficulties that you have. So the first two or three weeks of the season looked like bad exhibition games because they were still basically exhibitions guys hadn't been together for a month and they expect them to play league games so I mean I think that was a a bad call on their part not to have any exhibition games, they did in 75 they had a couple of games for each team but 74 they started right into the season Um, they didn't work any of the kinks out a lot of the difficulties that teams have getting used to each other, getting a game plan down, Um, so a lot of the few first weeks of the season were kind of ragged play Um, they got better as they went along but, you know, the, the season started out because of that. I, I think the 20-game season was way too long, and a lot of people say that now. Um, you know, they uh, around Labor Day, they played four games in, like, a week and a half, and the players just said it was just murder because we couldn't – we had no time to repair, we had no time to rest up, we had no time to heal our injuries, and we're playing one game on Monday, and the next game on Thursday, and we're playing again on the next Monday. So it was just insane to try to get 20 games in by Thanksgiving. And uh, I think that was one of their downfalls. I think if they had played a shorter schedule, I think that would have helped them tremendously. I think if they had played 12 or 14 games and ended, say, around October, and they that might have helped. I think because the, they, before then, the around week 14 was when they started really having trouble. Where two teams folded, two teams moved. That wouldn't have happened. They wouldn't have had that bad press. They would have gone maybe 12 weeks. Finished, finished the season with all the teams still intact, had some playoffs, had the championship game, then you're ready for the next year. You don't have a lot of that bad press that you did, even though they did have the whole bad press with the uh, paper gate scandal, as they called it, or the sugar gate, because Domino Sugar um, sponsored some of the tickets, where the Philadelphia and Jacksonville said they gave away tons of tickets, um, you know, at, for their first couple of home games, and they looked like, um, you know, really underhanded. Um, and then after that, I, I think to me, in my opinion, that's when the, really the league kind of died. And anything after that, the, anybody was depressed, the, the, the public, nobody was going to believe them because they just they really shot themselves in the foot with that deal. Um, you know, sports franchises give tickets away all the time, you know, for promotions, for that kind of thing. But, you know, the WFL turned it into a real um, art form by doing how they did it. And they didn't do it very well, so I think that was one of the things that really, and that, that early in the uh, league's existence, really kind of you know signaled a death knell for the league.
1: Well, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, so and, and we'll get to some of those shenanigans in a second. But but I guess two sort of obvious questions maybe uh, one, um, why no exhibition games, right? And then number two, um, the scheduling apparently was a lot of the games were m- scheduled for midweek. And I guess maybe uh, you know, which doesn't seem logical or or make a whole lot of sense, given that you know weekends might be uh, greater attendances, and, and summer is one thing, but you know in the fall probably a bit different. I guess maybe the third question is why not the spring? Right, that's an obvious hindsight question. What? But you know we'd have no competition really directly, right? Why not sort of bump it up to what the, obviously the USFL figured out later on was. Maybe a more virgin territory shall we say that was bereft of football professionally um versus say late summer and then almost semi directly competing with the n f l later in the season
0: yeah i mean you know you, you make a couple of good points because you know in one in one, you know in one uh instance they wanted to compete against the n f l uh, and other instances, they don't, they don't want to, they concede the weekends to the NFL. They don't want to play on the weekends. They know they're not going to do well. So they, Sunday's out, Saturday's out because you've got college football, Friday's out because you've got high school football. So, um, the only thing that they could come up with was Wednesday. They played most of the games Wednesday. Then like the NFL has Sunday and then Monday night, they had the Thursday night game. Um, it was kind of novel. And now, you know, the NFL plays, you know, games. On, I don't know if they still do or not, but they did for quite a while. They had a Thursday night game. So, obviously, again, that idea carried over to the NFL. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy that, you know, at the time, midweek football was not uh, played. It was not something that the NFL did. And all of a sudden now they do it after the WFL did it. So, they, you know, they they uh, you know got that idea from them, I would think. Um, you know, they didn't wanna play you know, I don't know what who's whose decision it was not to play exhibition games. I really don't. I've never seen anything in writing and said, Well, we're not gonna play, you know, exhibition games, except they just said, No, we're not gonna play exhibition games. We're I don't know what their reasoning was. I really don't. Again, because that made the first couple of weeks of the season very ragged. The play was not up to par. It did get better as the season went along, but you know, the first couple of weeks were were very uh, you know the football just was not very good because it was like exhibition games because the players were still getting used to each other, the teams were getting used to each other. and uh, i'm I'm not sure what the uh, the idea was. I think that you know, I think that was a bad move. Again, they rectified that in seventy five by do they did play a couple of exhibition games. but for seventy four, I don't know. I think it was a bad decision. I think the twenty games were a bad decision. Um, so it was not, uh, you know, again, they made some uh, good ideas that the NFL took, you know, uh, took and ran with. And but a lot of them were just uh, ideas that just went nowhere and didn't help them and didn't uh, didn't benefit.
1: Well, let's talk about those first few weeks. Right. So you mentioned some of the uh, the crowds, uh, a number of them inflated. But uh, it did seem, though, right uh, out of the gate uh, and including a nationally televised broadcast on the uh, TVS television network. Um, You know, that uh, this was a very interesting uh, and perhaps uh, uh, in its beginning forms, a successful um, uh, endeavor. You had a a number of uh, debuts with uh, some substantial crowds, um, and uh, the first couple of weeks looked like it was uh, a pretty compelling uh, shot across the bow, so to speak, right? So um, maybe you can give a sense of sort of uh, those first few weeks and then perhaps how those uh, first few weeks uh, began to unravel publicly.
0: Well, you know, yeah, they did. I mean, Birmingham had, uh, I think, 53,000. Um, Jacksonville had something like 60-some thousand. Um, Philadelphia had 50,000. Um, I think Memphis wound up with somewhere around thirty eight, thirty nine thousand. Um, 39,000. And I think Chicago had something around thirty five, forty thousand. 40,000. So, yeah, the first couple of weeks... The numbers were great. The uh, ratings on TV, on TVS, that was the only uh, network that they could really get. They couldn't get any of the three big ones because they were tied up with the NFL. They didn't want to, you know, and I'm sure they probably got a little push from the NFL saying, hey, don't sign with these guys. Uh, And at the time, you didn't have ESPN. It was still uh, three or four years down the road. So you had TVS, which was uh, the one that they got with Eddie Einhorn, who was uh, wound up being one of the leaders, uh, owners of the Chicago White Sox. He wasn't was entered at TVS at the time. And the ratings were great the first couple of weeks. The crowds were great. And then once you had that, you know, the second crowd at uh, Philadelphia was like 64,000. In uh, JFK, they had the old 100,000-seat JFK. And then the second game, like I said, had sixty about 64, 65 sixty five thousand. They're saying, "Man, this is this is great, you know, this is fantastic." And then the word came out that Philadelphia had paid for the house. I mean, it was not like a couple of thousand. It turned out that the first game, instead of fifty five thousand, was like um, thirteen thousand that actually paid. And then I think the second week, the second game, home game, where it was sixty four thousand, was something like eight thousand and paid to get in. And it was really, you know, very deep discounts. So it was really – uh, it wasn't just a case of a couple of thousand tickets. It really – that, to me, really hurt the league. Um, and after that, the crowd started to dwindle, except for a couple of places like Birmingham there. Even though they went down, you know, a little bit every week, they still held in there, and they wound up leading the league in, in attendance. And Memphis did well. Um, but, you know, a lot of the teams just really – after that, the fans kind of lost interest because they just didn't think that they were on the up and up. They're kind of underhanded. They weren't doing things the correct way. And, and the NFL, being the rival, they're going to glom onto this news. They're not going to sweep it under the rug. They're going to put it out there. They're going to put it in the paper. They're going to put it in the, you know, the, they're going to talk about it, Roselle or whoever it was. Yeah, hey, look at what these guys are doing. You know, go with the NFL. We've been here for years. We've been here for over 50 years. We're established. We don't do this kind of thing. Look what these guys are doing. So they're not going to, you know, not going to take advantage of that. And they sure did. So, so again, that didn't help the WFL either.
1: You, do you think the NFL was actively working behind the scenes to bring this issue more to the forefront? Um, and oh, And yeah. make an issue of it to, to injure the credibility of the WFL when maybe it might not have been such a big deal, at least in the – it seems to me – And I, you know, occasionally I see, uh, at least a few years ago, there was a, there's a document uh, that apparently was purportedly uh, written uh, as a research project for the NFL about the WFL and the people behind it and the money behind it. And it was on eBay, you know, some guy made a copy of it, you could buy it on eBay for a couple of bucks. Um, It really seems to me like there was some real intrigue and real, uh, I wouldn't call it espionage, but, you know, who knows, uh, at the NFL offices about sort of how to, you know not only monitor what was going on in the WFL but potentially figure out ways to undermine it and it seems like this was a spark that uh, became a conflagration perhaps fanned by uh some of the uh the elements of the NFL.
0: Oh sure. I mean I, I agree with 100%. I believe that the NFL was working behind the scenes whether it was you know, you know, I don't know, like you said, intrigue espionage is kind of strong words, but yet they really did they all they could to kind of undermine it, that these stories were in every newspaper in the country. I mean, it wasn't hard as, you know, it was the, like I said, paper gate scandal, sugar gate, whatever you want to call it. Of course, everything was gate because this was right after Watergate, And, uh, you know, they made sure that these stories got out there. I mean, I think it was, it, it was a story I heard where the owner of the Eagles went down to the, uh, went talk to the IRS who that that's who found out about the, uh, the uh, papering of the house in Philadelphia, he made sure he told them that, hey, you better watch out. There might be something going on. I think they didn't sell all these tickets. And sure enough, when they went to collect the tax money, which should have been on 60, 50, 60,000 people, it turned out to be like 20,000. So, I, you know, I think that behind the scenes, I think they did. I think they went to the press with stories. I don't think they made up stories because the WFL was doing some things that, you know, on their own to shoot themselves in the foot that didn't work out well, that the NFL just, you know, ran took it and ran with it and said, hey, look what these guys are doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to run things. And uh, I think that that really hurt the WFL. And, you know, who can blame them? I mean, if this, is a, a, this is a rival league coming in here. They don't want them in here. They're driving up salaries. They're driving up tickets. They're hurting the, their product and they don't want them around. They don't want, uh, you know, they don't want them, you know, signing away their players. They don't want them losing players to this league, driving up salaries and they, and losing our profits, and they don't want them around. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's any kind of business. It's kind of like what I equate now if you look on the Internet and if you're looking for a hotel or a place to stay in a city and you see a lot of negative, uh, they have like these, you know, rating places, and a lot of it, Take them with a grain of salt because are they rival hotels that say, "Hey, go and write this on the internet and say this 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 place is a bad place to stay." I've had instances where I stayed in hotels that were wonderful and that got terrible ratings. So. I mean, where is this coming from? Is it from the other owners, just like the NFL? Hey, you know, we've got these bad stories. Let's keep running with them. Let's keep uh, keep them, you know, fan the flames, so to speak, and just keep them in the press, in the uh, in the public's uh, eye, so that people start losing interest and start losing confidence in the WFL.
1: Well, uh, it seemed like it did have an effect, right? Because uh, based on my uh, recollections and my uh, my investigations, right the uh uh, it looks like the, 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 televi- the televised broadcast did quite well in the first couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, the uh, the enthusiasm, but then obviously it, it, it turned, and it turned pretty quickly and pretty dramatically towards, towards the downside where, you know, after, frankly, about six or seven weeks, you had uh, some really serious house on fire issues, including uh, teams that were already uh, perhaps uh, initially wobbly were now starting to really show cracks to the point of, of even a couple of franchises uh, talking about and actually then following through on actually moving in the middle of the season to different cities. So maybe you can give us a sense, a sense of sort of how this unraveling started to play out um, uh, both on the team level and the league level and the television level, by the way, for our audience who haven't heard, uh, if you have not heard our episode number 26 uh, with um former uh, TVS uh, producer and director Howard Zuckerman. I highly encourage you to give a listen to that one uh, where he talks about a couple of different uh, situations where they were going from, you know, once going to a city to, to get ready for the next week's game. And then being told that the team was either folding or moving to another city, they had to literally stop in their tracks and go to another city. Uh, Amazing stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've even read that on, uh, if you've ever read Alex Hawkins book, the second book um, when he was, cause he was the color man for TVS for the WFL. He said that the the truck would sit in like Kansas during the week. And then they would get the call. Where are we going? Because it was the middle of the country. So it was accessible pretty much to I me. Mean, he wasn't going to stay in Portland cause he might have to go to Orlando or Jacksonville. So they pretty much parked the truck with the crew in the middle of the, of the country. And said, okay, we're going to get to call. Where are we going to? So um, yeah, it just, it unraveled very quickly right after that. Um, and, you know, you were talking about trying to get an interview with Davidson. I know the WFL website got an interview with him, which is very interesting. Um, um, the, the WFL um, website, the Richie Franklin, uh, he, he runs that with a couple other guys that are football researchers and aficionados, especially WFL ones. Um, and they got an interview with Davidson in and, and, and that interview, they asked him about the Paper Gate. He said, you know, if they had just told the truth and said, you know, we gave away these tickets, but we still had a crowd of 50,000 when the Phillies were playing next door and the Flyers were playing, um, or it was not the Flyers, but some other game was going on at the same time when the, when the Bell game was going on. And they had this, there was a, some kind of a, I know there was a concert at the Spectrum, excuse me, there was a concert at the Spectrum. Uh, Phillies were playing at the vet and the bell were playing at the, uh, um, at JFK, but they still had a crowd of 50,000. He said, if they had just came clean and said, yeah, Hey, we gave away these tickets to like the red cross or some businesses, but we still had this great crowd, even with this concert next door and a Phillies game next door. And he said that probably would have helped them a lot by just coming forward and just saying, yeah, we gave away these tickets, but we still had a great crowd. Um, I don't know if that's true, but you know, it might've helped. But, yeah, things just went south. You had uh, teams just all of a sudden, the crowds dropped off. You know, the, the TV ratings uh, started to drop off. Um, New York had, you know, because, the, again, another thing was we were talking earlier about background checks and vetting and that kind of thing. They didn't. They went into markets which didn't have great stadiums. I mean, you know, Philadelphia played at JFK, which was old. and was crumbling. It wasn't the greatest facility. Uh, because they wouldn't let him into the vet. Um, and uh, Franklin Field, they wouldn't let him in there. Frank Rizzo, the mayor then of Philadelphia, raised a, a fuss about it and said, no, you're not going to get any of those. You have to take what you can get. Um, you know, New York, uh, at the time, it was just ultimately bad timing. The, the ultimate bad timing was that uh, at the time, was the Yankee Stadium was being refurbished, so the Yankees and the Mets were both playing at Shea. They had absolutely no dates open for Shea Stadium. And the Yankee Stadium was being refurbished, so they, they had to settle for Randall's Island, uh, the Downing Stadium there, which sat like twenty thousand, twenty five thousand, and was really a decrepit stadium. Didn't have very good lighting, um, so they started losing money. They were the one of the team that, that wound up moving. They moved to Charlotte, and in Houston, even though they had a great facility there with the Astrodome, they couldn't draw any fans. Steve Arnold had put enough money in and said, "Okay, I've had enough." i I've dumped enough into this. I'm I'm out of it. So they wound up moving that team to Shreveport, Louisiana. Even before they had an owner pick, they just moved the team to Shreveport and said, okay, we're going here. And then they they wound up with with an owner, but they didn't have one when they moved. Um, They didn't draw better crowds there, but, you know, again, you're talking about Shreveport. Um, Orlando and Jacksonville, I think they were way too close to each other. Um, you know, if they just had one Florida team, I think they would have, would have been a better situation instead of trying to have two teams so close to each other. Um, you know, Portland had a soccer stadium, which, you know, the first time they, they laid it out, they laid it out as a soccer field by mistake. And they had to hurry up and and lay it out as a football field for the storm's first game. Um, you know, some of the teams, like I said, they had good facilities. The, The Southern California sun played in Anaheim at the big A um Chicago had Soldier Field which was good um uh, Birmingham had Legion Field which was a very big uh stadium so they had a good uh a facility to play in Memphis's team uh their uh stadium was very good but Orlando's was the, the Tangerine Bowl which is nothing what it looked like now I think it sat like 18,000 people it was very small um and they had to put some um you know temporary bleachers in to kind of pad the crowd a little bit Jacksonville played at the Gator Bowl, but Detroit, again, they couldn't get Tiger Stadium. Davidson swore that, uh, you know, uh, Mayor Coleman Young and some of the people that were behind the team promised them they could get Tiger Stadium. The Tigers and the Lions um, had an ironclad uh, lease on it. They were not going to let them play there. They wound up, again, like out at Ypsilanti at Eastern Mississippi University. It was a tiny stadium. Again, they wound up putting out temporary bleachers to try to, to uh to pad the crowds that didn't help um so you had a lot of places that were you know that had bad crowds that and bad facilities which led to the bad crowds hawaii um they didn't have aloha stadium yet it wasn't being built so they were playing in hawaii stadium which they called the termite palace because it was built out of wood and uh the ticket prices were way too high and the worst thing was that they they ran the games on tape delay on tv so the fans figured why go out to the stadium you can watch it on tv so i mean that didn't help them at all so um it was just an idea that once that hit the, the the press with the paper gate um the crowd started to drop off teams started to have trouble the bad owners came to the forefront that you know these guys didn't know what they were doing such as detroit with the 33 owners um and nobody took command of it that was the problem I And mean, you have teams even up to this day that have multiple investors and multiple owners that are in there, but you have one guy at the lead. They didn't have anybody like that. Nobody wanted to take the command of the, of the whole conglomeration and say, I'm in charge and we're going to run this this way. It was just, these people just, Oh, what do we do? I don't know. What do we do? You know, you know, and so it didn't help that situation at all. So it was just with that paper gate, with that bad press, the, everything just went to uh you know, went to heck in a handbasket pretty quick. And uh, next thing you know, the crowds are down to some cases like in Philadelphia. They had the one game where they had 750 people in a 100,000-seat stadium, which, you know, I, I've seen pictures of it. It just looks terrible. And, you know, you're down to three figures. Then you've you got some problems. You've got some issues. So that's it, it, that really, like I said, signed to death now for the league was that, that, you know, they just couldn't recover from that, even in 75.
1: Do you think uh, as that stuff sort of came came to the fore, uh, do you think that uh, was maybe a reflection of the uh, business model, which seems to me focused or or uh, dependent upon this idea of franchising, right? Where you know you're selling a franchise and the rights to run something, but it almost feels like it's, you know, I, it's almost the antithesis of what we see today in today's modern major league soccer, for example, this sort of single entity thing, right? where you have a fairly strong, uh commissioner and or you know joint ownership structure, it seems almost like in the haste to get you know 10 to 12 franchises, right the uh, the rush, uh, the compromise, the lack of vetting um, you know really starts to come back and bite you in the butt when uh, some initial challenges, shall we say, with the paper gates or, or whatever uh, start to come into four, the, there's no sort of backbone or structure to kind of, Uh, ride it out, so to speak, and or with uh, with clarity and authority.
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly. You make a very good point because, you know, the AFL, going back to the AFL, they hired Joe Foss to be the commissioner, very well-known, war hero, very solid citizen, did a great job in the first five years. The ABA hired George Blanken, who was a big name in basketball, you know, an all Hall of Famer, all pro with the uh, Minneapolis Lakers back in the forties uh, and fifties, a well-known name. WHA had, uh, Oh, I can't think of who his name was now off the top of my head, but they had a, you know, they had hockey people at the forefront there with Davidson. I, don't, I I think he made a mistake by naming himself commissioner. I think he should have gotten a strong football guy in there at the, at the beginning to, to help build their publicity, help build their, their credibility I think their credibility suffered with Davidson. I think he was just he got a little bit ahead of himself. And again, you're right. You they didn't do their homework. They didn't do their their um, you know background checks. Their vetting with not only owners but also with with stadiums. Uh, they didn't say, well, can you get into the stadium again? Yeah, okay, fine, but you can't. And uh, you know the owners they had again they got lucky with several of them with with men like John Bassett, but a lot of them were people who had no idea how to run a football field or a football organization or a football team. And it showed it it really came out then because then those stories, once they got the stories of the, of the, the phony attendance, then all the other stories started coming out. And the NFL, again, glommed onto all of them and said, Hey, look what these guys, they don't know what they're doing in Detroit. They don't know what they're doing in Orlando. They don't know what they're doing in Philadelphia or, um, you know, in Hawaii or in Southern California or whatever. And you've got all these, you know, these owners that, you know, if they'd have had a strong central figure and strong ownership and maybe not had as many teams, I've I've heard several interviews with former players and former uh, personnel from the league who said we should have had eight teams and about 12 games. And we had done much better because that would have weeded out the bad owners. You still had maybe eight strong owners that could have survived. That could have withstood the, um, the financial losses they were going to, they were going to have, but they were going to have them because, you know, it's a startup league. Any league that's starting up is just going to have losses. It's, it's a, it's a given, it's a known fact. You're going to have to be able to survive that with a big outlay of cash. If you don't have that cash, that, uh, that operational cash on hand, you're not going to survive. And a lot of them didn't, a lot of them just had so much money. I think it turned out that Detroit, they never really. They had a, a franchise fee. They never even met that because the the owners put in like, I don't know how much it turned out to be ten ten thousand each. So it was like like three, 3, dollars or something. It was like half of what they were supposed to put in. It never got all their money from them because even though the people running Detroit, say like Marvin Gaye, who was part of it, Esther Edwards, who was part of Motown Records were smart business people. They were smart business people in their given field. They were now thrown into something they had no idea what they were doing. They didn't have any idea, any, experience running a football team. I mean, they. The, the one story from Detroit was that the one owner said, "Hey, you know, they were trying to figure out where to have training camp." He said, "Well, let's put them in tents on bell Island, which is a you know a city-owned island, and they just pitch you know, pitch tents and." you know, make s'mores and sing campfire songs. And they're saying, we can't do that. But that story came out, you know, and when they took with it, took it and ran, look at these guys, they're, they're building tents to put their players in for training camp. But we have them in, in dormitories and colleges and they wound up there. They do wound up in Eastern Michigan, but yet that story came out. And of course, you know, something like that, people are, you know, rolling their eyes and wondering what is this league all about? So when these crazy stories came out, they were like, oh, the credibility isn't there. So, you know, they said, well, we've got the NFL already. What do we need in second league? And I think that's what a lot of people thought.
1: Well, and and <clears throat> with Houston moving to Shreveport, uh, and Shreveport not being sort of the most major metropolitan area, shall we say, the Stars moving to Charlotte, right? Um, and then you, you have a, a couple of weeks later, the league, whatever backbone or, or spine it had, uh, literally pulling the plug on on both Detroit and the Sharks. Uh, I guess it was about 14 games into the season. So, you know, now you had teams actually just folding all together. Um, so I, maybe you can kind of give us a sense of sort of how all that stuff not only unfolded, but then what that led to for for Davidson because he didn't last much longer. I had his had so Davidson got booted in I guess October of that season. Um, I, I'm just curious as to how that sort of all comes about, right? Cause it's obviously unraveling in public. Um, you know, how do you sort of survive and hold on and try to keep at least a season going? You know, you got two teams that move, two teams that are basically done. And now, you know, I, I can't imagine how Davidson would try to put a good face on that and still, still hang on. And obviously he didn't.
0: Well, he tried to, but you know, it was just not something that was going to happen because he... Um he had you know, you had so what what happened? What he did was his plan going in, from what I understand from his uh interview at the WFL website was that he was gonna prop up these the the worst teams, like they did the WHA. They had this plan in WHA where they could prop up teams, keep them going. In the WFL, that didn't work. He went to these owners, he went to the big money money men like Riger in Chicago, like Bassett in, in Memphis, and said You've got to give some money to these other teams, and these guys didn't believe in that. Or Roger said, "Look, I come from a, a a family and a background that says you pay for your own mistakes. I'm not paying for your mistakes. Plus, I'm trying to run my own team." So that was really what happened with a lot of these these teams that couldn't make it was that he asked the other owners to to put the, the foot to the bill for them, and and a lot of them. That's what led to his ouster. Especially to Roger, he was the one that really led that, and Bassett was pretty much right behind him was they got tired of paying for all these other teams. They had to okay, you've got to give them so much money for Detroit. Well, I'm playing them this week. I'm supposed to pay them now, too, on top of playing them? You know, and it was just not a very good plan. It worked in the WHA, I guess, for a while, but in the WFL, it just didn't work. The, the, the richer owners did resented the fact they had to not only run their own franchises, they were asked to run other franchises and give money to them. So their coffers were emptying quicker than they wanted them to because of the fact they're trying to prop up these other teams. And that really led to uh, Davidson's ouster there. I think it was at the end of October. They finally said, we've had enough of you. We need to get somebody else in here that knows what he's talking about, knows what he's doing. And uh, you don't, and you're just kind of a shyster. And that's where he got a lot of that, um, you know, that reputation at the time was that, you know, he was just kind of a huckster that was going in there and, and trying to to run this thing kind of a, uh, you know, with, with smoke and mirrors. And again, the other owners just started to resent him. Um, You know, again, you you said, you, you touched on it there that they were starting to move into, you know, the smaller uh, markets. I mean, you're going to Shreveport, you're going to Charlotte. Um, You know, you start out with New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, and now you're moving into markets that are tiny uh, and not, you know, as, as, as marketable, say, as the bigger markets, you're not going to draw the uh, the ratings or the fans at these smaller um, smaller markets, and I think that what's hurt them at the uh, at the end of '74 and then in, into '75, that it was just uh, putting on these uh, these smaller markets instead of trying to keep teams in the bigger markets and trying to do something with them they just moved them to these smaller ones and it got to be almost like a minor league like kind of a you know like an acfl the atlantic coast football league after a while and it just people lost interest in that because of that
1: all right we're going to put a tivo pause on this conversation uh because we're going to do a part two uh this is uh, just too good to uh to pass up Uh, and to cram into one episode. So uh, next week, uh, we're going to have our part two uh, with Mark Speck and our cursory understanding, our introductory chapter, shall we say, uh, into this uh, wacky league known as the World Football League. Uh, Before we sign off for this week, uh, we want to encourage you to find uh, all of the books that, uh, that Mark has written uh, about the uh, the WFL. And of course, you can find links to all of these books at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search for the episode uh, number 51. And again, I guess also too now, of course, episode 52. Both of those will be our episodes with Mark Speck. And uh, you will see links to uh, all of these books that I'm going to read to you now. Uh, and I encourage you to read them. And uh, heck, if you're uh, a really good student, you'll you'll get these now. Uh, get them delivered to, uh, via Amazon in, in two days. I'm assuming you're a Prime member, and uh, you'll read all these books before uh, next week's episode. I know it's a bit much to ask, but yeah, I know there's some of you out there who just may do this. Uh, let's see the books in no particular order by Mark Speck, S-P-E-C-K, is how he spells his last name. Wiffle, the wild, zany, and sometimes hilariously true story of the World Football League. Uh, that is published by St. John's Press. Uh, you will find uh, also from St. John's Press the World Football League Encyclopedia, uh, the book that Mark uh, co-authored with Todd Mayer, uh, and uh, also on the uh, St. John Press uh, imprint is the uh, very cool book about the Florida Blazers of the WFL, called "And a Dollar Short." You will find that uh, out there to uh, to purchase, and um, the Detroit Wheels book. Uh, is uh, to come and uh, it's not available yet. I don't think you can pre-order it yet, but uh, we'll certainly uh, pass that along when Mark uh, has uh, more information about when that is published. And I suspect that too will be from our friends at St. Joanne Press. All right. So uh, that is it for this week. Like I said, we're going to go to part two uh, of the WFL story with Mark Speck next week. Uh, thank you again to Podfly Productions as always, podfly.net and uh, Dr. Jerry Payne for all of his uh, editorial and uh, production uh, contributions this week. Uh, we can't thank him and Podfly enough, uh, as always. And uh, I always uh, want to thank you, too, the listener. Uh, without you, this doesn't happen. And uh, we appreciate your, your interest. And uh, make sure you follow us at GoodSeedStillAvailable.com or on Twitter at Good Still, uh, or on Instagram at Good Still Available, or on Facebook. Find the page dedicated to us. If you want to send us an email, go to our website and send us an email from there all that good stuff. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Take care.